The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. A little bit of a Bloomberg Intelligence Roundtable here as we think about this banking issue, these banking crises, if you will, on both sides of the pond. We do that with Allison Williams. She's a senior global banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. And Tim Craighead, director of research, and he's a senior European strategist with Bloomberg Intelligence. And Tim, you're you're, you're based in London. Allison's based in, in Princeton. And, and Tim, from London, give us a sense of what the feeling is among Bloomberg's institutional investor clients and clients for Bloomberg Intelligence that you talk to about what the demise of Credit Suisse means, what the uncertainty of the European banking sector means to the typical European investor? Look, I think that the key here from, from European investors' perspective is, is this, you know, the cockroach theory going on, or is Credit Suisse a one-off that's been undergoing a very prolonged um period of, of troubles, let's put it that way, you know, a couple of decades worth in ways. And, you know, the, the take so far today is it's, it's very much more of the one-off. There are definitely issues that we need to consider, the ramifications of the AT1 situation, that special bond issue with, with Credit Suisse, um, was a bit of a eye-opener this morning that seems to have calmed for the moment. Um, but underlying all of this, if we assume this is one-off and SVB and Signature are in one form or another one-off, it does from a European investment perspective, looking across the markets, especially with FTSE in particular, it, we're, we're called into question, what about financials profitability post all of this? And I think there is a reasonable issue that our banks team on both sides of the Atlantic have been raising in terms of profitability of banks. And banks are a big deal for European markets, much bigger than they are necessarily in the US. You know, it's 25% of FTSE earnings, for example. Wow. And so if profitability is, is, is under threat relative to what was expected only two or three weeks ago, that changes the dynamic and the tenor of the market. Well, what does that then mean when you factor in something like uh, kind of the bond turmoil? These AT1s have gotten so much uh, scrutiny that the idea that they're going to get you written down to zero, it felt like in the early trade this morning, in the overnight trade as well, that affected sentiment around the world. It was this question of, well, if Credit Suisse AT1s are going to drop, then what is the incentive to create the capital buffer for any other bank around the world? Is that a fair assessment or a fair way to think about that? I'll, I'll give my two cents, but I bet Allison has perspective on this. But I, And I will echo Jerome Julius, who is our bank's credit analyst here in London. Um, you, you clearly could call exactly the sort of question that you have. But 
for Credit Suisse and UBS specifically, unlike any of the other AT1 issuers across Europe, they do have a little clause that is a little bit different that does argue why this is an exception and not something that you would just generically see putting in question AT1s as a as an asset class or you know a capital building tool for banks. And you know, I, I think if that's what proves to be the case, then maybe you know this market you know isn't or this tool you know won't be yeah. you know ineffectual going forward. Well, Allison, hop on in here. You, of course, oversee global banks and asset managers. What do you make of this kind of AT1 scrutiny? Allison, you're with us. Piece of research talking about, um, you know, why those securities are a little bit different than other securities in Europe. I think two things. First is that, um, you know, part of the violent reaction is, is just that you know, look at people that look at capital structure um, did not like that you know that that those uh, securities were zeroed and equity shareholders actually got something, um, but they are balanced securities, and you know it, that is a risk out there. And I think in this particular transaction, uh, the Swiss government made this decision to um, provide more capital support for UBS. So CET1 is a key ratio for that bank. And so that the way that this deal ended up being structured um, provides that support. And that, that does sort of lead into the discussion of, you know, the Swiss government talking about this not being a bailout, but for sure they orchestrated the deal. And so I think, you know, the, the two things um, to me were, first of all, that aspect Second of all, the fact that UBS shareholders are, are not um, going to vote, that's not required for the deal. And so that's that's something that uh, management alluded to that uh, the Swiss were had actually indicated they were going to change the law. And, and Tim might be able to comment on that from a macro perspective. But, you know, in, in general, investors don't like those type of surprises. I think uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, this this is a deal that, in the long term, has a lot of financial protections for UBS. They did get it at a very cheap price. They do have the added capital um, boost that we just discussed. Um, however, it it is going to take a long period of time. Uh, it's a sizable restructuring. The accretion is not expected till 2027. There's a lot of details that weren't aren't worked haven't been worked out. We're going to want to hear about so. Um, long term, it does look like an attractive deal, but there's there's likely to be some volatility in the near term. Hey, Allison, you know we were talking to your colleague Herman Chen, who follows the regional banks and for for Bloomberg Intelligence, and we're talking about how important it is, important role that regional banks and community banks play in you know markets all across uh, the country in terms of taking in deposits and then loaning it out to you know local businesses or consumers who want to get a residential mortgage and, th and things like that. To the extent that those types of banks are losing deposits to maybe, I don't know, the, the big money center banks, does that pose a risk for local economies? Like maybe the capital is not going to be there to build that new store or to finance this new office building or something? It, it doesn't necessarily pose a risk because these big banks, um, and specifically um, J.P. Morgan Bank of America and Wells Fargo, are in so many local markets across the country. And so that, that is the way that they're gaining the deposit is that, 
you know, they are the third or fourth bank in that local market. However, I would say that, you know, the the regulators are very focused. Obviously, they they prefer it to be they prefer deposits to be out, you know, across a wide variety of banks. They prefer um, not for the big biggest banks to get bigger. And a lot of the regulations and a lot of the actions that they take are in general aimed at protecting some of these smaller banks. And I think that's why um, you see a lot of people raising questions about deposit insurance, um, different people suggesting different things. I would just say that it's definitely tricky because um, it's a very big deposit out there, base that's out there that is uninsured. Right. And, um, you know, certainly we saw with the, with, with the um, orchestrated transaction last week that regulators are watching this, but they don't necessarily want to come in and provide that type of blanket insurance. Uh, Tim, real quick, uh, we heard from the ECB last week, 50 basis point increase. Um, how is that received by the market? How is that being received by the market? Yeah, Paul, I think the interesting thing here is twofold. Number one, there was a, I think there would have been a negative reaction had they not um, raised what was widely anticipated to be 50 because it would have given a sign that they think that there's a looming issue. So I applaud them for that. Secondly, if you look at um, what's gone on with expectations for policy rates over here, whether it be the ECB or it be the Bank of England, you know, th there have been dramatic shifts, and I know you were just talking about that with Fed policy as well. Um, the the idea that we're going to peak earlier and uh, lower and right. then pivot to easing is pretty pervasive. It, you know, but that begs the question: we haven't solved the inflation issue. Yep. That's still here. That's what they are focused on. I think. Personally, the market's up for being disappointed. Gotcha. Okay. All right, guys. Great great to get you two together. Allison Williams, Senior Bank Analyst, and Tim Craig, Director of Research and Senior European Strategist, both for Bloomberg uh, Intelligence. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, like, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Of the European banking community, the Euro European econ economic outlook, we can do that with Vania Stravakena, uh, professor of economics at the London Business School. Vania, thanks so much for joining us here. Uh, I guess... Some good news, UBS stock is trading higher. What was your takeaway from this UBS Credit Suisse uh, transaction? So thank you very much for having me. I do believe that this was a long time coming, that Credit Suisse was supposed to be um, essentially resolved. At this point, it was bought by UBS. I'm not quite happy with the way it was done, and I think financial markets are not quite happy with essentially everything being done behind closed doors over the weekend. The shareholders at Credit Suisse were not really considered much in this decision. And then, of course, there is the fiasco with the cocoa bonds. 
Um, overall, I do believe that development is positive because it's going to limit contagion to other systematically important banks in Europe. That's why we saw the, the heads of the central banks welcoming the takeover of Credit Suisse. My concern is with the long-run consequences on uh, both the bailing about debt, which is very important to regulators. So that's a massive market, more than 200 billion. And effectively, it felt like the Swiss regulators traded 3 billion valuation of equity shareholders for this 200 billion debt market. Um, and I believe that could have, be, have been done better and avoided um, essentially the repercussions to the billion about that market. Um, having said that, also it's, best, it's bad news for uh, the shares of banks, even if they're financially um, sound and solvent and they're well regulated, especially the large banks. The message that was sent after the weekend is that even though regulators assure everyone that you know the banks have enough liquidity, enough equity, Overnight, we might still wipe out a big chunk of the equity if we decide to um, do that, essentially, in the case of Credit Suisse. And I do believe that this might uh, translate into lower steady-state valuations of uh, bank equity, given the massive interventions of regulators and governments into systematically important bank, uh, which probably markets were not pricing prior to the weekend. Uh, Professor, put this into some perspective for us when it comes to international willingness to kind of invest in European banks here. How do you view this if you are an investor in the Middle East or an investor in Asia? Are you more or less willing after this Credit Suisse debacle to have that exposure to European and arguably to American banks as well? I, I do think it did create a problem for the valuation of equity for larger systematically banks. Of course, they, they have franchise value, right? There are assets backing these banks. Uh, so the question is by how much we, we cause damage by not considering the shareholders um, or not to a large extent uh, over the weekend. I do believe that actually what we saw happen was a result of political economy considerations. So it, it was a massive shock that equity still received something while the uh, cocoa bonds were completely wiped out. Now, probably this was necessary to persuade the shareholders of UBS that supposedly had, presumably had also exposure to, to Credit Suisse to take on the deal. However, there are ways in which this could have been done and they could have been compensated without um, essentially uh, create, creating problems in the billion about that market. Now, um, yes, bank valuations might be lower in steady state. Uh, the question is by how much? And, and here financial investors are waking up and realizing, okay, what is, what is the long-term damage of both the, the current shocks that we've observed, but also the steady state trends um, that are present in the banking industry, which is shrinking over time for a number of different reasons. So, uh, Professor, who really drives the bus in these types of situations? Who's really in charge? Is it the European Central Bank? Is it the Swiss National Bank? It, 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 give us a sense of how what, within Europe, when a bank is under stress, who really comes in to kind of you know, ensure that a deal gets done somehow? Well, to, to be fair, uh, bailing out banks is still a national issue. Right? So we saw it during the global financial crisis. Um, it is on the Swiss government, on the Swiss regulators to deal with Credit Suisse. Of course, they shouldn't take um, in isolation this decision because financial markets are very interconnected. Decisions they make have repercussions for, for the other central banks and, and the other um, large banks. Uh, so, for example, we saw that ECB and the European regulators made a clear statement that uh, from their point of view, bailing about debt is senior to equity and they would treat it as such, unlike what happened with uh, Credit Suisse. But it's very much decision done um, by the Swiss government and the Swiss regulators. Uh, I'm not sure to what extent the Europeans and the Americans were consulted, 
my priority is not that much. I, I'm confused almost by the fine print of that Credit Suisse UBS story that you were specifically talking about. But let's let's broaden it out here. If we're talking about this merger, really a merger acquisition, whatever you want to call it, I hear each bank has a different uh, way they're phrasing it. But um, if you are talking about the effect it has on the Swiss economy and by extension, um, one of the G10 nations of the world, what effect do you actually see? And I'm kind of talking about this in the lens of, say, FX, for example, and, and the Swiss taxpayer. Are there global ramifications for that? Well, it is not uh, completely without any repercussions for the Swiss taxpayer. So, for example, in the deal, they specified that the first $5 billion of losses will be borne by UBS, but then they provision for another $9.8 billion uh, of future losses that will have to be paid by the Swiss taxpayer if there are additional losses. And this is part of um, essentially the offering to UBS in order to agree to this deal. So potentially there could be implications for the for the Swiss taxpayer. Uh, that's for sure. I don't believe that the actual um, takeover of Credit Suisse is going to have very material impact on the Swiss real economy to the extent that the retail bank, which is what matters for lending to consumers and to firms has been always in, in good shape and it's ring-fenced. We'll see whether UBS is going to keep it on the book or it's going to be sold off in a separate entity. So the repercussions uh, to the real economy, uh, the Swiss economy, are probably limited. Now, the deal was important to essentially prevent global contagion. And uh, the, the longer you leave the bank, the Credit Suisse in this case, uh, alive, given that it's on the verge of death and it has been for quite a while, the bigger the risk of contagion to the rest of the financial mar um, industry. So in that sense, it was a good de decision to finally um, deal with Credit Suisse because it's been a long time coming. So, Professor, um, I'm do, not do, worried, do, yeah. I'm sorry, do you have concerns about other banks or other countries or other regions in Europe that we might see more of this? Or do you think this is specific to Credit Suisse, which, which as you mentioned, has had longstanding problems? Yeah, so in, in terms of systematically important bank, I do believe it's definitely specific to Credit Suisse. One caveat being is that we definitely do not know where the uh, interest rate derivative risks is, are born. So if there are large systematically important banks that have loaded on uh, interest rate risk and they're the sellers of the insurance, the issues might be there. The main issues in the European banking sector are going to be similar to the US banking sector, and that will be with the regional and small banks. So it, it's a very similar pattern, right? So the, right. the issues the US is uh, facing is the fact that in terms of book market valuations, the small banks are solvent, but the mark-to-market valuations, they're insolvent. They are relying on the backstop uh, of the Fed, borrowing against face value. So the same consideration um, is present for the Euro European banks. The European banks are a little bit in a better shape because they have uh, floating mortgages uh, yep. and not so much fixed income. But in terms of credit contraction, we will see... Okay. Credit contraction in Europe as well, potentially. All right, Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, again, really appreciate getting your perspective. perspective. Dr. Vania Stravakina, uh, Professor of Economics at the London Business School, talking to us about this UBS Credit Suisse deal, UBS acquiring Credit Suisse. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I want to bring in John Micklethwaite. He is in our editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News. He is located in our lovely London headquarters in the city of London. So, John, the story for uh, Global Wall Street over the last several days has been 
the dying throes, if you will, of the Credit Suisse. Um, could you give us a sense of, again, the acquisition being announced this morning, UBS buying uh, Credit Suisse, what that really represents for Swiss banking and just Switzerland in general? Well, I think it's Switzerland saying, and this may have been fallen in the category of the bleeding obvious, um, that you know banking is a critical national industry to them. Um, in the same way as you know, Hollywood focuses on films or whatever it is, it's this is a crucial part of the Swiss makeup, and they made this decision. It, it is you referred to your own experiences. <laughs> it is a pretty amazing thing. This this bank, which certainly when I started being a financial journalist in the nineteen eighties, you 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 would not have imagined that Credit Suisse was even remotely close to this. And even as little ago as a decade, it was worth over a hundred billion dollars. And now suddenly it's being snapped up for three. And the whole point about Swiss banking was it was meant to be reliable. Um, so maybe UBS has got a fantastic deal, but it's certainly a change. And I think it will send shockwaves not just through um, Swiss banking, but also through European banking. You now have, I suppose, a Swiss national champion in one extent. What, what questions does that mean for other banks across Europe? Will there be more mergers? And just as in America, I think there is you know, fundamental questions about whether America should have so many small banks, what super regionals mean, and so on. It, there is a general financial questioning going on pretty much across the world. Put that into perspective for us when it comes to international investments. If Credit Suisse and Swiss banking largely was the gold standard, now that it's kind of fallen apart, does that disincentivize investments from the Middle East, from Asia? I think certainly the Saudis don't love them very much yeah. at the moment, having um, uh, d- just and, uh, right the way down to the weekend still arguing about it. I think it must make a difference. It's an odd business, though, banking. You you look back at the 2008 crisis and you had a variety of names which were sort of shuddering at the brink. Um, you know, Citibank was an example of something that everyone began to say how terrible all its balance sheets were and things like that. But millions of people around the world, I'm guessing millions, certainly a lot of people, bank with Citibank without any particular worries now. Um, so you can see that happening. Um, I think you could see it's just possible that UBS has actually done a remarkably clever deal. It certainly would look like a clever deal if you looked at it, say, five years ago. You would think if you could really buy Credit Suisse for $3 billion, you know, what's what's and and get permission, in a sense, from your national government to sort of reorganize it, that's quite a good start. Um, the problem is we don't quite know what's buried in the in the Credit Suisse books. John, is there, con- and I'm just looking at the UBS ADRs right now, they're trading up about 4% here after trading lower earlier. So uh, the market's applauding uh, this deal, at least at this point. John, is there a concern or maybe what level of concern is there in Europe that this may not be a Credit Suisse specific issue that this, there may be more system, systematic risk across Europe? You, you look at Credit Suisse's problems, um, and, and again, I've no doubt you played your role in this, but, but the, <laughs> the <laughs> pretty much since those days, it used to be, used to be a very reputable place. Um, but you look at the recent ran, run of scandals, pretty much everything at some point has ended up with Credit Suisse being involved in some bit of it. Deutsche Bank also has a record that goes mm. a bit like that. The German Landesbank have a um, record which occasionally has meant they've ended up with things that they shouldn't have done. So there's quite a few things l- looking around. And the big difference, I think, this time 
is that whereas previous sort of banking problems had a lot to do with underlying credit quality, I think certainly in terms of kind of Silicon Valley Bank, and also to some extent what happened in Credit Suisse, is, is it, liquidity was the main thing. I, it wasn't whether in the end you have a sort of reputable business with good lending and so on and so on. Notwithstanding all the scandals at Credit Suisse, you know, they had quite a lot of capital against that. The problem was that they, they needed capital to pay people who wanted to take their deposits out now. And that is the one sort of cord that runs true between both Silicon Valley Bank and this. What does that then mean for kind of these regulatory bodies here? It felt like the bond market turmoil just in the last 24 hours really pushed uh, the European banking authorities to say, look, what's going on in Switzerland is a Switzerland-specific kind of regulatory uh, arena, for lack of a better term. Um, Are they right to, to really emphasize that? Well, I, I'm not sure they are in that extent. Um, yes, there is a there is a great deal of Swissness about this um, <laughs> subject, particularly of keynote to the deputy editor in chief of Bloomberg. But the there there is something there, and the Swiss, to some extent, have taken decisions that will not please that many people outside um, Switzerland. There are a lot of European banks are suddenly looking at their capital, or you know, people who've invested in different levels. Bondholders and European banks are suddenly a bit worried. You've got the Saudis doing their stuff, um, not pleased. So the Swiss have taken a number of kind of somewhat insular decisions, you might argue. But you look around the world, it, it's very difficult if you're a regulator to know exactly how you deal with that liquidity side. Because what's happened with both Silicon Valley Bank and with Credit Suisse is you've had this thing where people have just queued up saying they want their money back. And that's quite hard. That's much harder to deal with in a strange way, other than maybe if you insure all depositors. But Mm. that that carries an enormous amount of moral hazard. John, you know, when I think of Switzerland, I think of chocolate, watches. Uh, and you know, bank secrecy laws, banking—it's a—it's a—it's identifiable with the, you know, it just seems like Switzerland, one and the same. How do you think the average Swiss person on the streets of Geneva or Zurich are taking this this news today that one of the venerable institutions ha- has gone under? I think there, there was a mutual friend of ours um, pointed out that when this thing started, that they didn't think the Swiss would panic. Um, and, and you look at different things. There have been various sort of small-scale things where you have seen investors in Switzerland move quite rapidly. You saw a thing involving global, global asset management a couple of years ago where they suddenly pulled money out of a bond fund. It, the, the, the Swiss don't seem to panic unless they really think it's sort of hitting their money at that time. In this case, I think, as far as I've seen, and I stand to be corrected, is that most of the action on Credit Suisse was from outside Switzerland. It was from people taking taking stuff back, um, or, or certainly not from the retail sector. And, right. and there, is that, there is that question about the retail sector. You look at possible mergers in Europe, you know, one potential one long-muted in Germany is you put Deutsche Bank and Commerzbank together. A justification for that would be that Commerzbank... Um, whatever its ups and downs, does have retail investors in a way that yep. retail depositors in a way that um, uh, the, the Deutsche does not. Hey, John, just lastly, I mean, we've you mentioned Deutsche Bank, and over the years we've, we've talked about that a troubling story. And one of the solutions that we Americans bandy about is why can't the stronger European banks buy out the, the weaker European banks? And we keep getting told about this, boy, that's a tough regulatory sell. Is there any change in that I, thinking? I, 
I th- well, well, two things. Number one is, yes, you're absolutely right, and I think there will be a change. I think the change will come from, um, in part from that, but also from a general national belief in certain national champions. You cannot take any of the stuff that the European Union is spouting at the moment about national champions and so on and look at finance and then discover that the top five banks are all Americans without thinking that maybe something will come of it. And the second thing to the Americans is, you know, pa humbug. (laughs) (laughs) America is the place where there are these thousands of small banks, um, which I don't think anybody outside one or two American politicians thinks is a particularly brilliant idea. (laughs) Right, exactly. We're we're dealing with that as well here. John, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, John McElthwaite, he's the editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News, joining us uh, from London and giving us some uh, excellent perspective on what is taking place in Switzerland with UBS, Credit Suisse, and then just uh, European banking in general. We appreciate getting some of his time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, John Tucker, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Big, big news continuing in the world of global banking. Again, coming out of Europe, Credit Suisse uh, being acquired by uh, UBS. Uh, good news for the banking space. Uh, seeing some of the other big names like J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup uh, also do well. Some of the regional names uh, kind of hit or miss. First Republic Bank is down another 15%. Uh, no news there on kind of uh, a salvage operation there, so we'll pay attention to that. But some of the other uh, regional banks are trading higher today. So let's break this all down. We'll do a little roundtable here in the banks. Uh, we can do that with Herman Chan uh, and uh, Arnold Kukuda. Both of them are uh, analysts for Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, Arnold follows it from the credit side, and Herman follows it from the equity side. Uh, and they're both here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, uh, Herman, I-, I have to admit, I'm surprised. It's Monday morning. I thought we'd come back and we'd have a buyer for First Republic. I thought I'd have a buyer for some or all of the Silicon Valley Bank. Where are they? Yeah, Herman, what's up with that? <laughs> yeah, I, we're all asking the same question. Uh, I think First Republic is trying to make a go of it. Uh, if you want to take a step back, First Republic's historically been a very well-regarded bank. Uh, CEO's been there since the founding. Uh, high regard across um, you know, fellow CEOs and regulators. It hasn't lost money in its loan book in its entirety. So it's done everything right, and it's getting caught up in some of the uh, turmoil in the markets. And I think, you know, rightfully, they're a bit prideful and want to try to salvage uh, whatever they can. Um, The market's going against them. So we'll see what happens. Um, SVB, it's a different picture because it, it is a bit of a complicated bank. It has, you know, investment banking. It has a private wealth management arm. It has a venture debt arm along with your traditional loans and deposits. So sounds like um, the FDIC is taking a dual track and trying to sell the traditional bank to a traditional bank buyer. And then the other stuff uh, will go elsewhere. Arnold, hop Oh, yeah, there we go. Arnold, hop on in here and talk to us about this bond market because uh, 
over the last 24 hours. It's been fascinating. Look at the Credit Suisse uh, fallout and kind of how you even trade that, uh, given the AT1s are going to be written down to zero and that creating commotion around the world. Is that panic over now in the credit market? <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people were caught by, you know, oh, even though it was written in the docs, right, that for the Swiss AT1s, now, there, what, is it, a what is an AT1? Give me a definition. I'm not a bank person. Yep. So uh, additional tier one capital, it's um, think of it as like equity light. Okay. Right. And um, I, I guess these are supposed to be, could be perpetual securities, but I, I guess there's a quirk of uh, people, uh, investors in Europe expecting these to be called at the call date in, in five years. But And then um, the AT1s, these are kind of a post-financial crisis instrument where um, mostly people look at this in terms of if your capital ratios, which are, let's say, 14%, and they go below 7%, that's when these things are triggered. And, triggered, and then, so the bond would convert into a piece of equity? Uh, for most of Europe, yes. But okay. then for the Swiss ones, right, these were unique in that they were write-down security. So Ooh. you get zero. So why the fine print on Switzerland? Well, and so that, that's kind of the, the path that they chose to go, right, where it's kind of like, you know, there, there are also other ones where it's like, oh, you could be um, um, temporarily, temporarily written down, but then they might have a chance to come back. Or, um, but, but more in this case, I think it was, it was like because the regulator had to step in. So then it was like, OK, well, regulator had to come in, and, and, and that's why you guys are getting written down. So it, it, was, it was odd that even though the equity still got, what is it, I think $3 billion at the end, um, you know, the 18 ones were written down to zero. So I think that caught some people, a lot of people, <laughs> offsides. Yeah, I bet the guys who wrote those contracts, Paul, raking it in. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, it's just amazing. So because so, typically in a bankruptcy, the equity guys get zero. Yeah. The credit guys, the more senior you are, the more you'll get if you get anything. And the more subordinated you are, the, more, the, the greater the risk that you're not going to get anything. You're going to get substantially less. In this particular case, the equity holders got something, right? And these AT1 bondholders get zip. Is that yep. kind of how it played out? Yeah, but, yeah. So, and, and I think it's because of this, like, because the regulator had to step in, guarantee, I think it was like $9 billion of losses, and, right? So it's not just a smooth, okay, um, UBS buys for, for $3 billion, you know, um, Credit Suisse. Well, it actually had the regulator had to kind of massage this and then and take on some losses. So, you know, pointing to that, um, you know, th that's why they were able to kind of uh, go in and, and write down these 16, 17 billion dollars of securities. And then put that into context when it comes to the ripple effects around the world, because it felt like then all the AT1 bonds around the world were like, no, I don't yeah, want to touch this. Absolutely. Right. Then it's like, oh, oh yeah, th there is. It's not just you're looking at, um, oh, how, how, how big is your, you know, traditionally you look at the buffer. Oh, yeah. We are, you know, X billion amount of uh, 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 capital above our buffer. But then when, when, when it comes to kind of confidence runs and, uh, you know, regulators having to step in, then they can kind of point to that clause and say, hey, actually, uh, this thing will trigger, this thing will get converted to equity, or, or in this case, the, the worst case, you know, written down to zero. So, All right. So, Herman, I'm looking at the S&P 500 regional bank sub-industry. Uh, it is trading up today. Um, has it has the worst pass for the U.S. regional bank as a category, as an investable category? Do you think as a sector? It's still going to be a bit of a roller coaster ride, but I would say that resolution with the uh, the issue in Europe with Credit Suisse, and also closer to home with uh, New York Community Bank, which is another bank we cover, buying uh, certain loans and deposits from the FDIC, and really. Uh, Injecting a bit of confidence into the system, showing that the system works. Um, a bank may fail, but another bank will step in and and absorb some of those assets and those employees. So it, it, I think 
all in all today should be viewed as a sign that, that things are a bit stabilizing. So New York Community Bank up 35% on this deal. Does that surprise you? You know, it doesn't surprise me because, it, in effect, it, it was a very sweetheart deal for NYCB. Uh, this, the issue with New York Community Bank historically has been funding. They, they uh, do their, their funding base a bit differently where they issue a lot of higher-cost CDs and a higher-cost wholesale funding. So, in effect, all these lower-cost uh, signature deposits are coming in to, to improve the balance sheet, and, and that has really strong implications for earnings and, and earnings growth and the net interest margin. So it, now, who put this deal together? Does the FDIC come in, or does just NYCB do it on their own? So, uh, like like most of these failed deals, failed uh, banks, the NY uh, the, the FDIC will do an auction process, and there are you know, anybody any bank of a certain size can bid and offer terms that they think would, would win, and eventually NYCB was the winning bid. Arnold, do we have any of these AT1 bonds in the U.S.? I mean, did our banks do that kind of thing after the financial crisis? So uh, um, th- these COCOs in Europe, the, the ones with these triggers, Cocos? that's a way uh, – uh, contingent convertibles. Oh, right? these, right. we'll, we'll stick with COCO. The, the, these, <laughs> <laughs> they have clauses where you know, if you hit a certain level of equity, then you'll get written down or convert to equity, or, or the regulator has to step in, you'll get converted to equity or written down. Um, the way we fill that in the U.S. is through preferred stock. Right? And so we don't have these explicit trigger events where you get written down to zero or converted equity. So uh, I think we do have a better sense of you know, the, the capital structure hierarchy. How are those things trading like, Yeah, no, today? they're off, obviously. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, not, not as much as you know, other, other parts of Europe or, or, or Asia where I'm seeing like 10 points plus uh, down and stuff. So uh, I think you know, the regular sense of the hierarchy does remain in the U.S., but obviously – um, you know, with, with banks failing in the, in the U.S., still some uncertainty with FRC. Uh, the, the New York Community Bank um, acquisition of SPNY, sweetheart deal, right? They, they yeah. only took $13 billion of the loan book of, of what, $77 billion, right? So uh, out of the stuff that maybe overlaps with um, Silicon Valley Bank, they did not take the capital call line, you know, uh, book with the VCs. They did not take the commercial real estate Right, New York commercial real estate mm-hmm. stuff. So th- there's a lot of stuff that, that was left out there, right? So, um, you know, has everything solved yet? I mean, yeah, let's see how this, you know, First Republic thing plays out. I mean, we got the S&P downgrade, right? But, yeah, th- there's still a lot of cer- uncertainty, I think. All right. Well, you guys are all over it, and that's why we feel so fortunate to get access to you two guys. Uh, Herman, uh, Herman Chen and Arnold Kakuda, they're both Bloomberg Intelligence one follows the equity, one follows the debt. They're interchangeable as far as I'm concerned. They both know <laughs> what they're talking about when it comes to banks and, and bank accounting. Uh, so maybe, you know, a little bit of a ray of sunshine there, Critty. You know, we get Credit Suisse uh, kind of dealt with, Signature dealt with here in the U.S. Now we'll see, I guess, next if you we know, can get something with the West Coast banks. A, a, a proper nerd like myself would notice that you just said the debt folks and the equity folks are interchangeable, yeah. kind of like a, a cocoa. Yeah. Arnold gets me. Um, anyways, th- that moment's over. Continue. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Hi, JT. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Well, my producer was just pointing out that I knew it was close, but... 20 years to the day today is the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Wow. 
Did that go uh, fast? Um, Greg Parsons joins us here. Greg is the chairman and CEO of Kavu Securities. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Kavu, what does that mean? Where did it come from? So, Kavu, military Kavu. acronym, uh, Ceiling and Visibility Unlimited. Gotcha. That's a good name for a firm. I mean, you, you got everything in focus. You know where you're going, all that kind of stuff. You know, it really is, you know, up and to the right, you know, sky, yep. you know, the opportunity sets unlimited. Certainly as a former infantry officer, you know, I've got a little personal agita, you know, paying homage <laughs> to my uh, my aviation brethren. But, yes, it's, uh, it is a, a great, it's a great signal, and it's a great signal to the market of what we're trying to accomplish. And uh, Greg was an inf- infantry officer with the United States Marine Corps, so we thank you for your service, Greg. Talk to us about Kavu. What are you guys trying to do there? Where do you fit in? What's, what's the focus for you guys? So we are a, a minority and veteran-owned broker-dealer based here in New York City. Uh, and look, we view our strategic mandate. You know, I, I've spent coming on 30 years ever since I got out of the Marine Corps at the, in the financial services industry um, and take a lot of pride and feel a lot of responsibility in driving uh, the conversation around uh, inclusion and, and equitable opportunity, right? So at CAVA, we view our mission as providing best, you know, pro- being a strategic solutions provider for that corporate treasurer or that public fund allocator to allow them to be uh, inclusive, more inclusive in their decision, financial services um, decision-making. In terms of the macroeconomic issues here, look, I'm a market scale, so you've got to really, like, nerd up uh, for this next question. What do you do on Wednesday, FOMC decision? Uh, I mean, it kind of depends where you are and what type of investor you are. I mean, uh, we have a sister platform, a mortgage-backed security shop, I think, Certainly the volatility in the market, right? The market's kind of expecting, you know, a quarter point. Um, I think it's, it's, it's going to be volatile sledding moving forward, right? So I, and especially volatile sledding, volatile sledding <laughs> right? Technical term right there. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, with everything that's gone over the last two weeks, uh, you take a very, you know, as best you can, right? You show up balance sheet and you sure you've got kind of a long-term perspective, but there certainly is value being created um, in, in various pockets of the capital markets. Are you hedging at all? Uh, again, on the asset management side, with where where we have exposure, it's probably less about hedging from a direct, uh, you know, using derivatives or overlays, and more about at, you know security selection or sector selection. And again, we are extremely yeah. bullish on structured product, asset backed cash flows. That you know, while they're certainly spread widening in market right now, if you believe in the fundamental credits of what you have, you've got some natural hedge to some of the volatility we expect to see. Greg, you know, I've been on the streets similar to you more than 30 years, um, and I'm not sure the diversity situation, whether it's racial diversity, gender diversity, has gotten a whole lot better. I mean, I look at the incoming classes of analysts at Investment Bank USA today. It'll be perfectly racially diverse, gender, race. But when you get seven, eight, nine years on to the managing director slash partner interviews, it ain't so anymore. In your experience, how has the street evolved and not evolved? How does it – what's going on? I mean, look, you know, certainly, all right, now what's the soundbite to answer? I mean, that is a massive question that applies to much more than just Wall Street. But, no, I mean, look, your macro premise, my first job out of the Marine Corps was working for a minority-owned investment bank in 98. You fast-forward, it's 2023, and how much of the landscape has fundamentally changed? Not enough. Yeah. Um, Look, I think there's certainly a, a growing focus on the human capital side, right? How do you recruit, you know, identify and recruit talent and build that pipeline and build that funnel, right? Second question is how do you then retain them? Yep. Um, certainly, I, you know, I spent about eight years at McKinsey thinking about uh, that exact issue, right? Um, again, I think it's a multi-tiered problem where the first is 
ensuring that you're the open end of the funnel, right? You're creative, you're thoughtful, you know, ensuring you're not lowering a standard or lowering a bar, but you're providing an equitable opportunity set for folks to get into the funnel. And then look, it's corporate's responsibility as they think about um, building a career path for, again, whether it's veteran, whether it's minority, whether it's gender, how do you ensure that you give someone the right path, right, meritocracy of idea, where if they perform, there's a path for them to succeed so that, again, 20 years from now, we're not talking about the same issue of uh, potential, you know, a, a, a disproportionate small number participation at senior levels of management. So are you confident 20 years from now that analyst class is going to rise and be just as equitable as perhaps it is now? Um, I'm certainly hopeful. I think I, I don't know about confident, but hopeful. I mean, look, there is there is growing conversation, right? Certainly the talent is out there. I mean, every academic study, every research study, right, shows the power of, you know, whether it's investment performance or skills or business performance, right? Yeah. The importance of and the power of diversity, right? That is now might have been a question 30 years ago. Now that's a factual statement, right? And so you're seeing growing adoption. Um, now, could you pick up the pace of adoption? Could you pick up the pace of services? Without a doubt. So I, I put myself in hopeful. Uh, confident would be a little bit strong. How about just the military? I, I don't, I guess when I think about diversity, I don't think about the, the military so much, the ranks. How about in financial services? Where are military veterans? Because, boy, there's lots of them. Over, I mean, we've been at a war for a long time. Um, and ramp up in, in uh, man manpower. Where are they on Wall Street? Any sense? Uh, look, certainly, I, I think you know it's a passion of mine. Veteran transition, right? You know, yeah. while uh, the Afghanistan war wound down, right, still twenty thousand plus um, veterans transitioning a month, wow. right. So there is a massive opportunity set to capitalize on that. You know, the leadership capabilities, the problem solving capabilities. I mean, that is one of the, our country's biggest, un, I believe, untapped resources. I mean, specific to Wall Street, I think you're certainly seeing. Um, at all levels of the entry, you know, the entry level pipeline, um, greater participation by the veteran community in, you know, at Wall Street, right? On the, on the buy side, on the sell side, capital market side, research side, right? I think certainly employers, the industry as employers is recognizing the benefit and the value of, quote unquote, the veteran community uh, and is making active outreach to bring them into the fold. And what is the connective tissue there? How, how are they kind of funneled into this industry, which is, I think, notably very hard to break into? Um, certainly there is what I call the hand up, right? The more veterans you have in it, I think about how I got my first job and my second job and my third job. There was a veteran on the other side of the equation that was either explicitly pulling me in or implicitly yeah. behind the scenes helping me guide, guide the path. Yeah. So I think there's a natural kind of self-fulfilling self-fulfilling mechanism and i also think uh you know you know there's organizations like vows right veterans on wall street right where there's conscious formal deliberate effort for quote-unquote wall street and decision makers to approach that community build programs onboarding platforms and the right training and resources required um, to better capitalize on that that audience all right greg thanks so much for, for coming in and joining us really appreciate it greg parsons he's a chairman ceo of kvu uh securities what's that stand for again Ceiling and Visibility Unlimited. Boom. I like that. That's very cool. He's a, a U.S. Uh, Marine veteran, so we thank him very much for his service on this day, the two years uh, to the day of the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq. So kind of puts time uh, kind of uh, into perspective here. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I want to get right to John Authors here, folks. We need some adult 
opinion, perspective, uh, maybe a little bit of curmudgeon-y stuff. I think we, we established the last time John was in here. Hey, John. Yes, not cranky, though. No. And never cranky. Never cranky. Uh, yeah. John Authors, he's the senior editor for Bloomberg Opinion. Um, John, I'd love to get your opinion mm. on this UBS Credit Suisse, I guess, resolution here. What's your takeaway from what we learned? Uh, to be honest with you, so far I'm a little surprised that it seems to be uh, be being received quite as calmly as it is. Um, I'm not saying I expected continued meltdown or a repeat of what happened after Lehman or whatever, but I, I, I am pleasantly surprised and actually almost a little off-put that <laughs> the re- market reaction has been so calm thus far. You want to see chaos? It just makes me think that not only I, but everyone in the market or a balance of people on the market is missing something. Um, In just the same way that I had never myself ever thought of Silicon Valley Bank as being something that was going to cause, that that I was ever going to need to write about. (laughs) And I was wrong. On, On Credit Suisse, it will be fascinating. The critical issue, I think, is... Uh, on whether the Credit Suisse deal um, manages to work, uh, at least to, to keep the sorry about it, to, to keep um, contagion under under control for a few days, is what happens to eighty one additional tier one bonds. Um, it was certainly a very contentious thing for the Swiss authorities to wipe them out when it didn't wipe out stockholders yes. completely, and now. I've I've had one email so far from people trying to start a class action on this. I'm sure there'll be more. Uh, my understanding is they probably won't win because there, you know, that that was the language in the original prospectuses. That was the point of introducing AT1 as a new category to really make um, banks safer. But from now on, why would you buy one as opposed <laughs> to? Uh, you know, equity in a bank that might actually give you a capital gain. It's it, it that that could be a real problem. Yeah, I'm. I'm a just. I, I think as far as everybody else here is out here wondering too, and especially the AT1 bondholders, mm. why the equity holders are getting anything in this situation. Is there anything that um, Swiss regulators, uh, the central bank, have said to explain as to why that may be? Not that I. I, I mean, I, I've. It was quite difficult to follow the press conference last night with the continuous, uh, uh, the continuous translation. No, not as not that I can see. Uh, I think there is a big element of internal Swiss politics going on here. That uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, Swiss people who have small amounts of shares in Credit Suisse. It's an incredibly both these banks are obviously hugely important corporate citizens of of Switzerland and not wiping them out completely mattered. I think calling it in some sense a takeover rather than a rescue mm. mattered, although if you're going to do that, presumably you could have allowed you know, allowed 81 holders to at least hold on to 10% on the dollar or something. Um, so I, 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 but the, you know, the, there certainly are soft political issues within Switzerland which would make them you know, very nervous, very very reluctant to admit that uh, that Credit Suisse had become worth nothing at all. Um, so, but, but that's my best guess. I, I can't see a really good reason from the 
any of the normal things that we would look at of about financial stability and so on, why, why you would do it. That. So, so where do you think we are, John, in terms of broad pan-European banking? Has mm. this deal kind of calmed the nerves, or do you think there's still this underlying, at the very least, a crisis in confidence in maybe in some of these banks? Both. Okay. I, I mean, certainly, uh, yeah, it, it's only one day the market was up. Yep. Of the week after Lehman, uh, incredibly. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, let's not build too much on that. But s- certainly so far, it has bolstered confidence to some extent. We're not in what, you know, in a free-falling condition at this moment. Uh, longer term, if Credit Suisse can get sold for $3 billion mm-hmm. when it used to be a more than 100. Yeah, yeah right, exactly. <laughs> um, that's really not good. And if 81 bondholders in one of the biggest, most secure banks on the planet can get wiped out completely, I, I don't see how it cannot affect confidence. I would worry if it didn't affect confidence. Uh, and to the extent that tightening money, monetary policy is supposed to you know, tighten general financial conditions and limit inflation, it should confidence it should make people more nervous and since uh this is like a real whole as you're saying crisis of confidence want to mm. bring in the regional banks here in the u.s since a lot of that storyline is similar yes and so we're just seeing um, a headline crossing the terminal here from wall street journal that jamie diamond is leading the efforts to craft a new first republic rescue plan yes what i'm wondering is we've seen so many of mm. these rescue efforts in the past couple days, week now, as it relates to First Republic, as it relates to Credit Suisse. So are these measures just not enough or fragile or or sentiment and confidence right now is just that fragile? I I think in the case of First Republic, it has gone so far that somebody has to buy it. Um, If Jamie Dimon, who, (laughs) who is seriously good at these things, has let the journal get hold of that story and run it, we can assume it has a big element of truth to it. And now that it's out there, you begin to get this analogy to, this is what I wrote in my column yesterday, was that, that Jamie Dimon is uncomfortably close now in the role he plays to the yes. original J.P. Morgan yes. <laughs> in the panic of 1907 when there wasn't a Fed... Uh, and basically the reason the entire financial system didn't collapse completely was because he, J.P. Morgan, by far the most powerful banker on the planet at that point, banged heads together. If Jamie Dimon looks at a deal and decides he's okay with it, then his cachet, the money J.P. Morgan, the bank, has, and the fact that he actually did pretty well out of buying Wamu's branch network and Bear Stearns in 08, he, he actually was glad he'd come to the rescue, unlike, for example, Lloyd's back home in England, which you know, suffered well, terribly. I thought, I thought Jamie Dimon, in hindsight, says, boy, I wish I didn't have to do or, you know, Bear Stearns or WAMU. I think he has to say that, doesn't he? Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I, I mean J- Jamie's, you know, he, he's not necessarily always that guarded in what he says, shall we say. Even right. on the record, and even more off. Well, but but I, I think he has to say that. I'm kind I'm of not, surprised, just put... based upon our experience, John, yes. from 2008, yeah. that we didn't wake up on a Monday morning, and this was all done in a nice little bow. Somebody bought FRC, somebody bought Silicon Valley Bank. 
Were there steals that we had back in 2008? Well, well what surprised me um, was how little news flow there was about First Republic over the weekend. Right. I thought that needed to be cleared up over the weekend. To some extent, again, the fact that we don't have real, you know, Monday after Lehman-style panic going on in the markets, even though First Republic hasn't been resolved, is quite positive. Um, but you do... Uh, I, I guess there's a lot of things going on, and... Uh, and you guess? Yes, I guess. Just maybe a few. Gosh, <laughs> you, you, no wonder you're a senior columnist for Bloomberg. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so... so um, um, when it comes to First Republic, I, I, I don't see at this point how it can um, how it can write itself. The fact that money continued to go out of it after all the other banks had put so much money on deposit uh, is very damning. Um, it really ought to be a bank that it's perfectly profitable to rescue. Yep. There doesn't appear to be anything insolvent about it. it, it it's... It's got a, an unfortunate business mix and it's got too many muni bonds on its balance sheet. But neither yeah. of those things are a problem if, you're, if you've got J.P. Morgan's balance sheets. Exactly. Are, are, I guess aside from those handful of uh, West Coast banks, do you feel like within the regional banking mm. space in general in this country, John, there's a, a crisis of confidence of, boy, you know, because we're seeing deposits move around quite actively. Well, I mean, that's the great concern, isn't it? That... that and this wasn't really the case, at least at the consumer level, in 08. Uh, there never was a significant bank run in 08. Something approaching that in WAMU, but no real, none of the major events of 08 happened because of uh, deposit runs. And that's basically what has driven things mm -hmm. this time around. And thanks both to the development of social media since then and the development of internet banking since then, both of which just about existed, but had nothing like the power they do now, that is much more of a concern. The other thing that does bother me, um, I covered regional banks back in the 90s, um, <laughs> some of the very best banks which basically had fantastic franchises, the bottom has fallen out of them. The, mm -hmm. the, the wonderfully named Fifth Third yep, in Cincinnati yep, being... Yep. Um, which at one point traded for five times book value. <laughs> Everything it touched turned to gold. Um, just wonderfully frugal, good bankers. Yep. That no longer seems to be a model anybody wants to touch, and that's yep. alarming. All right, John, uh, we always appreciate getting uh, your learned perspective there. John Authors, senior editor uh, for Bloomberg Opinion. And again, these banks uh, continue to be front and center for uh, investors, as well as uh, we're going to turn to the Federal Reserve coming up because they're they're going to meet on Wednesday. How about that? This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, 
OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.